over the pandemic, like we started living together when we, you know, went away from New York for a while. And that's like a different thing, the cohabitation of like two friends. And we had already at this point, at that point, I mean, our finances were already entwined, like with the business. So we already have like shared finances. We have like a legal relationship through our business, through our LLC. Um, and now we're living together, you know, back in New York. So it's like, it's just, I think there's been like, iterations of of us being friends and um and being family and like now in a in a like biological sense also and amrita is uh to me a platonic life partner i would love to listen to you talking more about your life and the ways in which you've made, you know, a really unusual and I think some idiosyncratic set of choices. And I just, I've been so impressed by the ways in which you create community everywhere you go intentionally and create artistic community in particular. So I feel really grateful to be your friend and to be doing this podcast with you. Welcome to Don't Think Twice. Vijay and Stevens is the writing and producing duo of Amrita Vijay and Andrew Stevens. Best friends, business partners, creative partners, and now, soon to be co-parents. This podcast has been about living an unscripted, off-the-beaten-path life as freelancers. In this special run of episodes, we will be exploring a different kind of unconventional choice. Our decision to become parents together and to raise children as platonic partners. As we find ourselves midway through this pregnancy, we are joined by our friend, Marina Weiss, who graciously hosts these episodes and helps us get to the bottom of many thorny questions. What I understand is that, you know, you have chosen to be business partners. You've chosen to be parenting partners. We met in 2011 um, as two desk jockeys. Um, and had a traditional just friendship, professional relationship and, you know, friendship after work, grabbing a drink, very quickly recognized um, that we enjoyed being around each other as friends do, you know, when you, when you click with someone. We went on vacation like three months after meeting um, each other to Miami. Accidentally went together. We were supposed to be like a group vacation and then no one else went. No one else bought a ticket and then we were like, well, is it weird? And then I left the job, and then but we were started to um, talk about you know just throwing like house concerts, getting people, creative people together that we knew to do um, whatever it was that they did, and inviting people over. So that happened when maybe a year, not even yeah, um, into our relationship. So that was sort of the the seed, the beginning of us quote unquote like working together in some capacity outside mm-hmm. of you know the office, like co-producing, and and you know, we didn't think about it really like that at the time, I think, but, um, that's really what it was, you know, we we're doing like house, house concerts. We curate, we had like a whole curation plan for, for those that was really kind of overwrought, like in retrospect. Um, but yeah, that was like sort of early project. And then it, it wasn't like for a formalized relationship until we started our business, but that was not until five years later. What was the initial decision to collaborate the inspiration was just because we were working at a music agency during 
the recession and like both felt feeling really disillusioned with how uncreative the programming was. We just were really, I think, responding to that and wanting to do something that was really immediate, really hyper local, really hyper um, like mul- like multidiscipline. So the the I think I think that was even from the start that we were trying to pair, um, you know, trying to pair two different two different disciplines together and try to see if we can find a common theme between them and, or like ask people to interpret a common theme through whatever their medium is. had a vision of moving to New York and that there being like some artistic community, a romantic vision of there being an artistic (laughs) community in New York of people who first and foremost want to make their art, want to do their art, want to understand what other people are doing, you know, and we didn't quite find that uh, initially. We did have people in our um, social circles who, one, felt the same, and two, were artists doing, understanding the same thing about you know New York City in 2008, 2009, 2010. And in that way, I think we gravitated to each other even without articulating it to each other because we had a shared vision of what we wanted what we thought new york (laughs) life would be like and and simultaneously what we wanted our life to look like Mm. that's a nice thought i i I don't know that i've ever summarized it so neatly but yeah i love that Mm. well i'm just trying to think why were we there's a lot of we can make a lot of friendships whether it's in school in work and 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 some last for a season and some last longer than that but ours and I have many friends from both of those eras, right? Scenarios, work or, or school, or, but ours has developed beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if partially it's because we do understand that we like share a vision for our life, mm-hmm. and maybe have worked to understand how our shared vision doesn't have because we don't fit together in a romantic or traditional capacity Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean we can't have a shared vision for the rest of our life together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think what's beautiful about that shared vision is that unlike a lot of people's romantic shared visions, it is explicitly inclusive of folks outside of your romantic sphere. And I think it's part of what draws people to you and into your community. Even people who don't produce art want to be part of your chosen family in order to witness and observe and feel part of something so generative. And I remember talking about this from the very beginning. We were talking about, we just like want a friend communities of people um, and more than just artists to your point, just like communities of people um, that, that are our chosen family. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know we're not there yet in in the conversation, but, here we are. Well, yeah, why don't no, no. we get there? We'll we'll circle back to some other places on the conversation. Tell us what you mean by chosen family. I mean everyone that you invite into your life in an intimate way. Transcend sort of the the um, typical ways you you interact with your friends by typical, I mean, typical the, boundaries. The, the I think social boundaries place on that that relationship um because it's such a catch-all phrase and that's something that i think is 
comes up a lot is that like a friend can be someone that you have lunch with at work like once a week or every now and then oh that's my friend or your friend can be someone that you share these really intimate kind of exchanges with and and I, I think we really specifically gravitate to that word of intimacy um, because because intimacy is so often used in only like a sexual connotation or romantic connotation but there's like so many shades to like what in an intimate relationship can be and like and being emotionally intimate with people can can like there's so much of a, a spectrum of that and we don't have a spectrum for the word friend mm-hmm. we either have like acquaintance friend best friend and like even those i think sort of fail to really um capture but yeah i mean uh the original question was about defining a chosen family and i think that is um, yeah, it's a, it's an, it's, it, it's a shared intimacy, I think is really, I would also add the word commitment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's, um, whether or not you like it in family, you know, you're, you have a sense of obligation to family often. Um, or, or if you don't, it's like something that's a lot of times fraught and requires a lot of processing, a lot of understanding that you're not obligated to your family. But when I think of chosen family, I think of an intimacy, but I also think of a commitment to my friends to be there because friendship can also often be like, oh, uh, even if it's a deep friendship, I think socially we provide ourselves with a little bit of an out like, oh, but it's just a friend. It's not it's not a partner. So there's mm-hmm. only so far that I need to go emotionally. There's only so much commitment I need to, to make. Um, and when I think of my chosen family, for me, the commitment goes much further than just a, a, a friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't respect boundaries. That doesn't mean doesn't let people be who they are and, and come and go as they need to. But it does mean that if someone asks me for something, it needs it just like a family member would. Um, it does and it will require sacrifice on my part at some point for, you know, in mm-hmm. the in the heaviest of situations. But that's what it means to be in a chosen family. That mm. is not it's not always just convenient and fun and good. It's also supporting the other through stuff. other other stuff. Yeah. Mm. And so there's that dimension of chosen family, and then there's also the family that you're literally creating, you know, with the community building as well as with each other. And I wonder about, you know, for you when that felt like it was going to that deeper level of friendship. Um, beyond just, you know, the friend who you went to Miami with by Mm -hmm. accident (laughs) by himself. Um, You know, was there a moment that you could point to that felt like, oh, Andrew's chosen family now? You know, I I think that's an interesting question because, because you know, because we have templates for romantic relationships, we have certain vocabulary for them. We have a cer- certain mile markers. We have certain questions that we ask each other to like understand what, well, like what, where are we right now? You know, defining the relationship is like a huge part of, of romantic dating. And that's not something that really exists in a friendship um, scenario. So I, I, I think the answer is no, I can't point to a moment where we had a conversation about, okay, we have a, like a commitment to being in each other's lives, or we have a commitment to like being there and difficult, you know, uh, what you said, Andrew, but, um, so yeah, I I think, I think that's one of the failures of our, of our like limited vocabulary is that we don't have like, I mean, uh, uh, us, the broad, broad us, um, is that I can't really point to a moment. Um, I think it was really just such a gradual, um, deepening of our relationship that like, it's hard to say, oh, this was a moment where, where, 
uh, you know, we like said that verbally or something, you know, in, in thinking, what do I want my romantic life to look like? Uh, what, you know, I, I know I don't, I don't want this kind of partner. I don't want this sort of setup. I don't want X, Y, and Z in my, you know, this traditional thing thing I see. And then to hear someone else say, well, you don't, you don't have to have that. Like it, don't be so quick to put everything into one basket and say either, either I'm married with a family or I'm single and childless, for example. Mm-hmm. And that teasing out like Which are all two of options, the, but they're not like a binary option. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so having individual conversations like, well, you don't have to have that. Or it's like, what if I don't want to have the kind of relationship, romantic relationship where I end up having to progress to like moving into that with that person or getting married to that person. Like, and I'm I'm speaking very personally here. Like what if I, Amrita, don't see myself as the type of person who like is someone's wife. Like I just don't see that role as being something that like um, I aspire towards. So where does that like, what does that mean? Like, does that mean that I then like, don't like, and, and you know, there's a, I think there's still questions to answer there. Like, but like, what does that mean for what type of relationship I can, I can pursue or I want to pursue or, um, and what does the setup look like? And again, that it's not necessarily maybe a binary choice, but either you are the marrying kind or you're like this, like bold and brassy, like, you know, doesn't need anyone ever kind of, kind of woman. Yeah, and I hear you talking about these social messages that we've received about like pairing off versus aloneness and childbearing versus not. As we get this podcast started, I'd also love to ask you to explain to the audience a little bit about how you grew up, um, because I think that will be helpful context. So can you tell us a little bit about what your family story was. We can start with you, Amrita. Sure. Um, I was born in the United States. Um, my parents were not, they were born, uh, in South India. Um, they had a very unconventional marriage, um, themselves. They have a mixed caste marriage, which was, uh, highly controversial, um, at a the love time. Match. <laughs> <laughs> a love match, as they say. And, um, I'm very close with my, my sibling, uh, my sister and I, she's, she's six and a half years older than me. It, she was sort of a maternal figure to me growing up, um, provided a lot of like parental care and stability. Um, so it's been really fun as an adult kind of recalibrating that relationship. And, uh, and she got married very early <laughs> by, by my, uh, standards. She was married when she was 24 to a man that she met when she was, they were both 19 and, uh, in many respects has like a sort of very you know, conventional setup, um, in, in, in terms of her family that way. So she has two ki- two children, um, two nieces who I love very much. My, my sister's a medical doctor. My parents are both science, science PhDs. So my, my dad is, um, a professor of, he's a reproductive biologist (laughs) relevantly to the subject Mm -hmm. of this podcast. He's a sperm researcher. Uh, my mom was a plant biologist, but has, uh, made a career change and, um, around Y2K actually, and is now a coder (laughs) for a telecommunications company. And did your parents meet through biology? They did. They met at science camp. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Andrew, do you want to tell us a little bit about what family meant to you growing up? 
I'm the youngest of two. I have an older brother who's four years older, born and raised in North Georgia. Uh, my parents are both uh, born and raised in the South themselves. My mom from North Carolina, outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and my dad outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I was born in Gainesville, Georgia, and at the time, my mom did uh, had only graduated high school. And so when I was a baby, she enrolled in college, working full-time during the day, going to college at night. And when I was eight years old, she graduated uh, college and has since and was an accountant and has since uh, became a CPA and then now owns her own firm. My father worked for a trucking company for decades. He was a truck dispatcher primarily for in the chicken industry, a position he didn't care for and had nothing to do with what he wanted to do in life. Uh, he went to the University of Georgia for broadcast journalism and had ambitions to do that. Um, but his own inner demons and family dynamics got in the way. My brother uh, married when he was 24 um, and divorced, but from that has uh, a beautiful daughter who is 17 years old. And he has since remarried and has two children. Babies. And he lives outside of Asheville, North Carolina, where my mother now lives as well. So I think that one of the points that I just wanted to make in introducing this podcast is that both of you come from families that are in some ways a little unconventional. I would say I come from a very conventional family. Okay. I stand corrected. A very conventional American post-1980s family um, in that they're separated. Divorced. Divorced. Mm -hmm. Divorced. Mm -hmm. They separated and divorced. Yes. Well, that is conventional, absolutely. But this idea, I think that... I think that our culture really raises us with ideas about marriage and love and commitment as being like milestones that each of us will approach. And I think that, you know, it's just helpful for our audience to know as they get to know, especially both of you, to think about, you know, how your ideas of family were shaped by your early experiences. And I think the idea, obviously, it's very conventional that folks are divorced now. Um, and it's very conventional that folks have love matches in our context. But in each of the contexts that you guys are from, that wasn't the expectation, right? And so I think that just noticing the ways in which your family's traditions of unconventionalness or like subverting convention in different ways might have set the groundwork for you to subvert the conventions around family and procreation or something that we might benefit from thinking about as we think about your family. I think that's a, that's why we have a third party <laughs> to connect some of those dots. Just to jump right into this sort of idea of family. I know from an early age, I and my father didn't uh, understand each other. Members of the family, of the greater family, noticed uh, that he didn't much appreciate me either. And even so much as brought it up to my mom that it was clear that my dad didn't like me and that that was a very strange 
thing to see for like a toddler whose dad didn't like him. So to your point about how family shapes us and in particular this situation that we're talking about I wonder if uh, you know there's an element where I never understood my family to be this like rock solid unit I was always very close to my mom and very close to my brother and we operated as a unit so I wonder if when I think about building my family in a new different way it doesn't feel so foreign because I never appreciated the family unit that I was in from the very get-go. And I would add to that, you didn't have the dad that ideally you wanted to have, and you're going to repair that by being a dad who will be caring and be present and perceptive. I mean, I think that's a lot of what your thinking has been in preparing for the arrival of this child is thinking about what kind of dad you want to be and what kind of um, presence you want to have, you know, being more present than you you perceived your, your own father to be um, when you were younger. And my brother is the dad he never had also. And while my brother lives in a conventional unit with a wife and, and kids under one roof, um, he doesn't he doesn't value that more than than he values the way I live my life, meaning that that works for him, but it's not uncomfortable um, for him for the way I, I'm choosing to build my family. Fundamentally, we both have an understanding that it's about being a good father, and that can look like a lot of different things and in a lot of different setups. Hmm. I, I don't know that I have quite the same kind of a I think a really beautiful but neat narrative about that um, I mean I, I think that my parents were very um, very intent on making sure that with two daughters that they had that they uh, were very much instilling that we could do anything and that there were no limitations. And I sometimes reflect on like how that might've been different if they had um, remained in India and raised us there. Um, and I think that maybe I have taken that and run with it it, it, and exceeded what they, what they may have intended for that message to be. Um, but I think it very much comes from, uh, being told that we can, we can't do anything they still don't fully understand my choices in life and um, may have had some expectations that I would be married in in a more conventional setup. Um, I think they had (laughs) kind of given up the idea that I was going to have kids at all, Um, had hoped, but maybe not really thought that it was going to happen. It's not something that they imposed on me, like that they were trying to pressure me to get married at a certain age, but it was definitely something that I think has surprised them that I have chosen not to do, that I've chosen to have a less stable profession than they might have um, wanted me to have. uh, And that's something that they are, I would say, accepting of, but not, don't fully understand. It's so interesting that you say that because I hear that there was this kind of, for you and for them, when when I hear that you're describing this moment of 
ascribing this to their permission to do anything that you want or being told that you can do anything you want to do. And there's this idea of the fantasy of that in their mind and the fantasy of that in your mind. Both of you have a combination of this like aesthetic, which always involves, right, the fantasy of things, the, the vision of things and the practical logistics of things. Like both of you also are concerned with like, well, how can we get that done? How can we accomplish that dream? How can we do things? And as someone who is more of a dreamer, I think, than, than you and doesn't always focus as much on the logistics, I'm always like, wow, they really <laughs> did that. They're an LLC. <laughs> They're also having a baby. They're also <laughs> doing these other things. They're making a movie, you know? They're making a podcast. They run event, an event series. And it's like, well, I, I am impressed by that. <laughs> and I'm excited for both of you. I think we should say before we close this up portion out, um, just a little bit about maybe what we're each hoping to, you know, do with this podcast. Um, for me, I hope to build on what Andrew and I have uh, already created a foundation for with our existing podcast, which is ostensibly about you know living an unconventional life and making unconventional choices. And this in is a very particularly particular unconventional choice, the choice to start a family in, outside the boundaries of a nuclear family. Uh, and so to me that this feels like a natural extension of, of what we've done before, but a definitely a new frontier for that. In this podcast, I hope to document my own experience in this process and also to hear Amrita's experience as it separate from mine and to hear from Amrita maybe the things that are have been assumed between us that I know and an opportunity to talk about the things that we don't agree on or the things that we experienced in a different way for people who may be in a similar situation who may be contemplating um, a future that scares them because it's outside of convention uh, and for myself uh, in, in later years. In this podcast, I hope to play the role of the audience and allow you to say things to each other that you might otherwise not have the opportunity to say by being the naive third who gets to ask the questions about the life that you live together and the life that you plan to live together. Um, I hope to also foster a space where you can share the feelings that come up through these discussions in a way that feels real um, because I know there's a lot of important decisions that you're making together about your lives and I know there must be big feelings that accompany some of those decisions um, and I'm really excited to be involved in this with both of you and we're so honored people. to have your yes. your presence your necessary part yes Over the next several episodes, we will dive into our decision to have a child together as friends and answer a number of questions. Why now? How did we conceive? How did we navigate the medical and legal complexities? What do our families think? What about dating and sex lives? In the next episode, we'll discuss how we decided to become parents and why we did this together. Dr. Marina Weiss is a clinical psychologist and a poet, and she will be our host for this special run of episodes 
You can find her at marinaweiss.com. <laughs>